0: Good morning. It is good to be back in Cape Cod. I was over a week ago, but I was in Nantucket last weekend, and, but I'm glad to be back here in Cape Cod. It is a blessing to have summertime on the Cape. I was in Virginia for about 10 days, and coming back, I felt like I was going back into fall or spring or something. Just felt a whole lot better. So it's, it's, what a blessing to be here. We are starting our second set on Revelation. You remember, I think it's about a, a little over a month ago, we did Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to start doing Revelation 4, 5, and 6. So that is our, we're going to go through methodically. You know, it's interesting. I was reading just recently that those who study the book of Revelation have a deeper experience with God. Uh, wow. So that means I must be seeing God when I'm studying it, right? I must be looking for Jesus. What's the title of the book of Revelation? The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So we sometimes we could have the epistle of Paul to the Romans. But here we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, good to know. So we're going to be hoping, by God's grace, that we could be looking at where Jesus is in our study today. In Revelation chapter 4. Before I get started, though, there has been um, just, just a lot that's happening. I just want to encourage us to be reaching out to those of us uh, who are, are have loved ones that have passed away. Just a week and a day ago, I, I was at Betsy Latimer's graveside service. Um, we have a memorial service this afternoon for Shirley. Um, I know that... Uh, Sister Yuvis, we, we just, we sorrow with you. Uh, we've lost your father um, because of COVID. And I know that there is a lot of, let, let's remember each other and, and, and be here for each other and pray for each other at this time. I'd like to pray now if you don't mind as we get started. Father, I am grateful that you are our God. You are still upon the throne of heaven. And we can come before you this morning. I ask that you will speak, that your word will come alive. But most importantly, Father, that your words are heard and not mine. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. sorry teacher side okay just do a little bit of recap it's been a month since we looked at revelation i like to just go through a few things just to remind ourselves first revelation chapter one verse three blessed is he that reads and understands and they that do the things that are written therein that is the csv chuck standard version But that's what God is telling us. Blessed is he that reads and understands. There is a blessing that comes when you spend time in the book of Revelation. Um, Here's just some recaps. Who is the main theme of Revelation? Jesus is the main theme of Revelation. What is the second main theme of Revelation? The things that must shortly come to pass. So if you were going to go through the book of Revelation, there's two things that you're looking for. Where is Jesus? Does that make sense? And I'm looking at what's this tell me about what's about to happen? The Revelation is written in a symbolic language. Uh, They use the Greek word somano, which meant to signify. Um, Much of Revelation is taken from what portion of Scripture? The Old Testament. In fact, most theologians who spend their lives doing this guess around 300 verses of 400 are taken from the Old Testament. So if you want to understand the symbols in Revelation, you and I must take some time and understand the source of those symbols in the Old Testament. Revelation's visions are for John's time through to the end of time. So um, when writing, the prophet would give a vision. It would proceed from his time to the future. You see it in Daniel and see it in Revelation. So when you're looking at the prophecies in Revelation, it's not... Hi, I'm speaking about something that's going to take place way down there. I'm speaking about what's starting in my time and proceeding to the end of time. And and we understand that the scope of history is seen as we study the book of Revelation. I like this next one. Christ is coming, not will be coming. So as you're going through the book of Revelation, there's this feel the whole way through. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. I'm explaining what it looks like. It's almost like... He's in the process of coming for 2,000 years. Does that make sense? There's, there's a process. It's not like I'm sitting down, I'm relaxing, I'm enjoying the beautiful scenery of heaven, and then I want to wake up at a certain point and start moving. That's not it. In the mind of God, there's always this, I'm preparing, I'm preparing, I'm in the process of coming. Um, yeah, I'm... So soon as I met Christina, and I asked to start spending time with her in hopes of a future connection. You understand what I'm saying? Soon as I started doing that, I was already past the wedding. Right here. Already past the wedding. And so, for me, the marriage is coming. I wasn't thinking, it will come. Let me just sit back and relax for a year or two, and then maybe we'll talk some more about it. No, 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 no. Christina accuses me I'm a little bit like a microwave. I want things done quickly, and she's a little bit more like a crock pot. (laughs) And so we had to find a happy medium, uh, which was about a year and a half. That was about as low medium as I could get. Jesus is looking at us, and his language for his coming is marriage language. I'm coming. I'm coming for you. And so he's thinking about that marriage, and that's been a focus of him for quite some time. One more element on the recap, one last slide here. Each major section of Revelation starts with a vision of Jesus or the sanctuary. Um, It's almost like the picture of Christ sets up an understanding of the section to come. It's beautiful as you get into it. Um, As high priest, Jesus is closely watching over the lampstands. Remember that? we looked at the seven churches which were represented by the seven lampstands. Jesus is closely watching over them. Why is that so important? Because from the very beginning of the book, we realize that our Savior is paying attention to what's happening in our lives today. He's walking up and down amid them. He's not some distance away. He is close. And then each church has a revelation of, what, of Jesus that is necessary for them. You know What? What you need and what I need is not the same. You say, well, that's very obvious. But do you realize God understands that? Sometimes Christianity comes across as cookie cutter, but God's not cookie cutter. Some of us need something different from Christ and God gives us what we need. There's some things that I need from God you don't need. I guarantee there's some things that you may need from God that I don't need. He provides what his children need. What a beautiful picture we have. In revelation all right we'll get started with this question why do you worship God good question right I mean we're all here in church and I guess it would be assumed that you know why you worship God but that's the question I have today for us why do we worship God is it some kind of inner desire that comes out of us Uh, Do we worship God because our parents make us worship God? Do we worship God because our friends come to church and you want to spend time with them, so you might as well come to church? Why do we worship anyway? What is the purpose of worship? In Revelation, as you are reading through, if you don't mind opening up to Revelation chapter 3, in Revelation, as you're studying, there is something that takes place between sections. Um, and I've heard one teacher, uh, Ronko Stefanovich, he describes it this way, springboard text, springboard text, and so I like to look at a springboard text, if you will. A springboard text is a text that ends one section and gives you a clue what's about to come next, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is the end of the seven churches and the end of the seventh church, Laodicea. This statement is made in verse twenty-one. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Springboard text. I've been talking to the seven churches. Now I'm talking about a throne and me being on the throne. Who's speaking? If you have a red-letter edition, this is Jesus, right? Now we see the throne room scene in Revelation chapter 4. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 are the same vision. However, today, we're only going to do Revelation 4. And I just was preaching at Harmony on this passage, and I probably should have done only half of Revelation 4 today. I will not put you to sleep. By God's grace, we'll quit on time. But there is a lot here. Revelation 4 and 5 are attacked t- together with a throne room scene and we are going to pick up with that at this point. All right. First, there are three main sections of Romans uh, of <laughs> Revelation chapter 4. You see a throne. Everything is around the throne. Around the throne you have 24 elders on 24 thrones. Around the throne, you have seven burning lamps of fire. Around the throne, you have four living creatures. And around the throne, there's an action taking place, and that action is worship. So here's the picture again of the throne. The throne is, everything is the focus. In fact, uh, if some of you want to just, do something other than listen right now. should never suggest this when you're preaching. But if you wanted to, count how many times the word throne is found in Revelation chapter 4. And then I'll ask later. That could find out who wasn't. No, I'm just kidding. So how many times is throne mentioned in Revelation chapter 4? Um, so it's, it's, the, it's the key focus. Um, why is it important that we see a throne? And that's the second bullet. Why is it so important that there's a throne here? Because God, the one who sits on the throne, is the ruler of the universe. That's the reason. It's so important. I've been reading through the Bible. And I'm in the section right now of David, or the uh, last couple weeks, David and Absalom. Absalom was really messed up. If you're familiar with the story of Absalom. Absalom just does everything he can to take the kingdom from his father. But one classic thing he does is he stands in the gate. And as the new people come into the city, his father David's in the palace, Absalom's outside, someone comes in and they recognize him as the prince and they fall down before him and Absalom picks him up and says, oh, don't worship me. I'm just like you. Please tell me what is your problem? And the person shares the problem with Absalom and Absalom listens and he says, oh, that I was judge in Israel and you have justice for your cause. You know what he's saying? Oh, that I was king. Because in their day, the person who was king was also chief justice. Now, we have our separation of powers in theory here in the U.S., right? But not necessarily the same in Hebrew society or biblical speaking. He that is king is also judge. And so there's this thing. When you see a throne and a king sitting on a throne... That means you can expect to find justice there. Do you mind turning with me to Psalms chapter 11? We're just going to look one or two verses here. Psalms 11. When you see a king on a throne, what can you expect to see, biblically speaking? Justice. A king would give judgment from his throne. Psalms chapter 11 and verse 1. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow and the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. What, David starts this so interesting. I put the, my trust in the Lord and then he goes, but look at the stuff that's happening. The wicked are trying to take me out. Verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Do you hear the dilemma that's coming out in David's voice? Sometimes I feel that way. Have you felt recently that foundations are being ripped out? In every single way, life is, regardless of how people look at it, regardless of what perspective we're coming through, the reality is foundations are not being upheld anymore. Injustice is ceasing to exist. And then you have in verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and His eyelids test the sons of men. Things may be falling apart. The wicked may look like they're gaining the ascendancy, but I want to let you know, who is on the throne? God is. You know what that means? Justice will prevail. Justice will prevail. Revelation, uh, Psalms chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9. David really likes this theme. In Psalm chapter 9, we pick it up again. In verse 4. Psalm 9 verse 4. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. What's it say in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16? Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may be able to find you and i come before the throne expecting help so when you and i go into revelation chapter 4 and we see this throne room scene in heaven and we see god is on the throne you can expect that justice is taking place in heaven and you can go before that throne because there's a judge there if the throne was empty that would be a little scary But it's not. There is one sitting on the throne. One who is, who was, and is to come. So now we go to a very, I find it an interesting point. There are four main passages that talk about the throne room of God in the Old Testament. Four main passages that talk about the throne room of God in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 19. The prophet Micaiah describes it. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. We have Isaiah coming in and he's standing there in the throne room of God and there are seraphims. And they come and remember they touch his lips with the coal from off the altar. That's in Isaiah 6. Then you have, not Isaiah 6 there, but the throne room scene is in Isaiah 6. Then in Ezekiel chapter 1, you have a whole nother throne room scene, which is very similar to Revelation chapter 4. And then in Daniel chapter 7, four key passages. You know what I found interesting in each one? God is on the throne in First in, in Kings 22, and he says, who, who will go? Who shall we send? Isaiah chapter 6, he says, who will go for us and whom shall we send? You get to Ezekiel chapter 1, it describes the throneworm scene, and then as it continues in Ezekiel chapter 4, the question is asked, uh, said to Ezekiel, I am sending you. It's a place of sending. At the throne, it's not simply a place where justice takes place, but action takes place. God says, I'm going to send people out and have them accomplish my bidding. You find this also in Daniel chapter 7. It says a thousand thousands ministered unto him or attended unto him, depending on what version of the Bible you're using. The throne as a place of service. Okay? place of justice and a place of service. Now the next thing we look at is there's a group of people that are there. Uh, I said people. I said that too quickly, didn't I? There's a group of beings that are there. 24 elders. And the question is, who are they they're sitting on thrones they're dressed in white they have crowns of victory or stephanos on their head are they angels are they humans Now, see this is a question some people have said that there were angels but you know never do you see an angel sitting on a throne in the bible there are no angels sitting on thrones Uh, there are angels dressed in white right we see that oftentimes um, but you never see an angel with a Stephanos or a crown of victory on. So who are these? Never do you find an angel called an elder, not only in the Bible, but in any rabbinic liter- literature. You just don't see it. It almost sounds like they're human. Does it make sense? You get that feel as you're looking at it. Fascinating. Where do you see, in Revelation, because we've we've studied the first three chapters of Revelation, where did you see sitting on thrones, dressed in white, and wearing a Stephanos? Where did you see that in your study of Revelation up to this point? This is the reward to those who overcome in the seven churches. Remember? Uh, Remember, sorry. Work on my English. Those who sit on the throne was Laodicea, Having a Stephanos was the church of Ephesus. And those wearing white garments were Sardis. These were all gifts that were given to those who were overcomers. I find that fascinating. So here we have these people. I'm calling them people now. My question is, how do they get there? How do you get 24 elders? Now help me out. Do we go to heaven, biblically speaking, do you go to heaven when you die? The Bible says that you're resting and sleeping, right? You get that throughout the entire Bible. So, how'd you get there? We say, well, there's Elijah. Well, I know Elijah's up there. There's Moses. Well, I know Moses is up there. There's Enoch. I know Enoch's up there. But that's a long cry from 24. How do you get 24? Miss Pauline? Absolutely. Thank you. We should have you come up and do some of the preaching. Matthew chapter 27. Do you mind turning there with me? Matthew chapter 27. And there is a great section here talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew 27 and starting with verse 51. Verse 50, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit in verse 51 says and behold the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised wow so at jesus death there's this earthquake it says many of the saints which were dead were raised then it says in verse 53 and coming out of their graves when after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there were holy, righteous individuals who were resurrected, thrown out of their graves at the earthquake, resurrected, came out at Jesus' resurrection after him. They clarified it was after him. Why? Because Jesus is the first fruits, right? They come out, and then they go into Jerusalem. Do they die again? You sound confident. Are you sure? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Now, I've always gone to Ephesians 4 when I'm talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And that's kind of where i have focused. But Ephesians 4, verse 8, says this. When he ascended on high, of course, we're looking at his ascension now. When he ascended on high, when Jesus went back up to heaven, he led, what's those two words? He led captivity captive. Now, it's a little confusing in English, but uh, if I were to give you another English translation, you might catch it differently. The New American Standard Bible says this. He led captive a host of captives. He led captivity captive. The New International Version says he led captives in his train. Jesus took those who were captured in the grave And led them with him back to heaven. No longer were they going to be here. He was the first fruits. They were coming after him. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who first reaped the benefits of the life of Christ. A book called Desire of Ages puts it this way. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended, he led the way and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed the heavenly host with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song attended the joyous train. Beautiful. Here in the heavenly throne room, sitting on thrones are humans. Is that good news? It is. And you say, that's almost a, can I use the word premonition? That's not the right word. A pre-foretaste. I'm going to get it sooner or later. Of what God wants to do for his people. He wants us to be in heaven with him. First point, there's a throne. It's where justice takes place and service. Second point, There are humans in heaven. It's a foretaste of what God wants to do for his people. There will be God's people sitting on thrones in heaven. All right, our next point here is the seven lamps of fire. Now, I've kind of worked through this one. I wish that I could. uh You ever get something when you study it, and then you study it, and then you study it, and you came up to the same answer before, and you're not satisfied with it? Yeah, yeah, that, that's the seven lamps of fire. So I was reading, I thought, there's, got a, there's a lot of smart guys out there, so I pulled out all the books from the smart people. And I looked at what they had to say, and they either skipped it, or they gave me one paragraph. I said, that's not a lot of help. But I'm going to share what I found, and what I can see biblically in Revelation chapter one. What are these seven lamps of fire? Well, The Bible tells us in Revelation 4, there is another name for the seven lamps of fire. Verse 5, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the what? Seven spirits spirits of God. So, okay, seven spirits of God, that's a unique name. My first thought would be Holy Spirit, right? Because that's a unique name, though, for Holy Spirit, seven spirits of God. So I went to Revelation chapter 1. We've already covered this, but let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation 1, In the introduction, John says this in verse four. Revelation chapter one, verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is this talking about? I would say Jesus, but Jesus actually is mentioned a little bit later in that same passage. So this seems to be god the father from what i'm seeing because jesus is mentioned later so it can't be talking about him so here it is grace and peace to you from him who was who is and who was and who is to come that's god the father and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth oh so i've god the father and i know i have jesus christ And there's one other member here that the book is written from. It would seem to be the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits would be the Holy Spirit, a description of the Holy Spirit. Seven is a number. Remember, Revelation is written in symbolic language. Seven would be signifying completeness, perfection. um, That would be used here. All right. So that is my brief statement on it. Revelation chapter 5 says this. Um, that there's a lamb. We see, we'll look at this uh, next week or the week after. A lamb as it had been slain, this is verse 6, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. There is a close connection between God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the seven spirits. And I believe whenever we look in the Gospels, we see there's a very close connection between Jesus and the Comforter who is to come. I will send him. He's coming from me. We get that picture a lot as we're reading the Bible. All right. The next picture we have. A throne. Surrounding the throne are 24 thrones with the 24 elders on it. Before the throne are four burning lamps, the seven spirits of God. Oh, one last point. Where is Jesus in Revelation chapter 4? Do you see him? Remember, Revelation 4 and 5 are the same vision. You're not seeing him in Revelation 4 yet because he's not introduced yet. He'll be introduced to us in Revelation chapter 5. Something very special happens at that point, but we will get there by God's grace in about a week or two. All right, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6 says, in the midst of the throne and around the throne were what? What? christ there's a sea of glass and then in the midst of the throne and around the throne there are how many living creatures four living creatures very unique what are the four living creatures well some a quick way to look at this is i looked at all the old testament throne descriptions all the old testament throne descriptions first kings 22 isaiah chapter 6 ezekiel chapter 1 and uh daniel chapter 7 and i said who is around the throne in each vision that helps me get the idea. Remember, by looking at the Old Testament, I can have a better understanding of what's happening in Revelation. So I'm looking at it, and here are some things. You can look them up. For the sake of time, I'm going to go through and share. 1 Kings 22, it says, all the hosts of heaven are around the throne. In Isaiah chapter 6, seraphim are around the throne. In fact, seraphim, that's the only place in the Bible that word is used, is in Isaiah chapter 6. In Ezekiel chapter 1, You know who's around the throne? Four living creatures. Well, that sounds like Revelation 4. And then in Daniel chapter 7, what's around the throne? A thousand thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. So those are all around the throne. Which one was most similar to Revelation chapter 4? It's Ezekiel. So I go to Ezekiel chapter 1, and things start to open up. If you don't mind turning with me, if you start looking at Ezekiel chapter 1, fascinating picture. If you want to keep Revelation 4 in one hand and Ezekiel 1 in the other, that we can go flip back and forth. That's fine. Um, Ezekiel chapter 1, and starting with verse 5. And also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkle like the color of burnished bronze. Now, when uh, when I was younger, I think that I actually tried to visualize this more than when I'm older. Older, sometimes the words just go in and out my ear. But can you imagine the picture that's being described here? It's very unique. Each one had four faces. Oh, sorry, verse 8. The hands of a man were under their wings on the four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. The wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each had the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. What were those four? Man, ox, lion, eagle. Same exact ones we saw in Revelation chapter 4. They're also called four living creatures. Very unique that they're being described as such. Notice in verse, um, let me check here. Sometimes you lose yourself in your notes. Verse 15. It says, now I looked at the living creatures and behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. That's verse 15. Notice what it says in verse 18. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. So there's eyes all over them, just like we saw in Revelation chapter four. There was eyes all over them. Do they have more than two wings? How many wings do the ones here have? Four. How many do the ones in Revelation have? Six. So there's, you're seeing some similarities. They're not identical, but there's some clear similarities. Um, what are these living creatures in Ezekiel? What are the ones in Revelation? I, I'm assuming that they're almost the same. Based upon that, i like to find out Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 15. And the Bible says, and the cherubim were lifted up. This was a living creature I saw by the river Shabar. Wait, 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 wait a minute. What was that? The cherubim were lifted up and these were the living creatures that I saw by the river Shabbar. According to Ezekiel, living creature, cherubim were the same. Let's look at verse 20. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Shabar, and I knew they were cherubim. So cherubim, living creature, are the same thing in Ezekiel. So when you and I are looking at the throne room scene in Revelation 4, and it describes four living creatures taking it almost word for word from Ezekiel, you and I are looking at cherubim. Now, what do cherubim do? They're used all throughout the Bible, but almost always you see this phrase. Cherubim are in the throne of God. They're right by the presence of God. Where God is is where you see the cherubim. There's only one time where I don't see cherubim in the presence of God in the Bible, and that's found in Genesis chapter 3 when a cherubim is guarding the way to the tree of life. All the other times you find cherubim, they are guarding God, if you will. They're the ones that are around, and they're also doing something else in Revelation 4, They are the worship leaders. The cherubim are the worship leaders in Revelation chapter 4. Do you mind a sobering thought? Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14. Speaking of Lucifer, it says you were the cherub that covers. What? The one that guarded the throne of God? You were right beside the throne of God? You were a cherub? Yeah. Amazing thought. How thou art fallen. I can imagine Jesus saying it. Someone who was in the very presence of God. A being. All right. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation 4, we are just about finish with our perusal of this chapter we have throne at the center by the way you have a rainbow around the throne what is a rainbow a symbol of not not in cape cod in 2020 i want to be clear do you realize how the world has taken a rainbow and changed it to mean something different than what god meant yes what's a rainbow a symbol of in the bible god's covenant promise Yes? And so when you see a throne circled with the rainbow, who was that covenant promise with? Uh, Martians. Beings in another world. Angels. No. Who is the covenant promise made with with the rainbow connected? Human beings. And so when you see a throne with a rainbow around it, it means in heaven, the covenant is not forgotten. It's always seen. Human beings are before the throne. Human beings are not forgotten. In heaven, God knows us. In heaven, God is aware of the plight of us. God cares. We have an awesome, incredible God. And as a result, here is what takes place. In the four living creatures, verse 8 each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They don't stop singing it. They don't stop praising God. You know, I think sometimes... When I see the throne of God, sometimes I remember, and you know why I got so caught up? Do you mind if I just, yeah. I remember the throne of God. I think of this, let me come boldly before the throne of grace. That's what I think of when I think of throne of God sometimes. Other times I think of the throne of God. It's like, you know what? Things are not going right, God. I want justice. I'm coming to the throne. But we must remember that around the throne in heaven, there is praise. There is worship. In fact, how often do you hear worship at the throne of God? How often do the living creatures cease saying this? They never cease. So over and over, 24-7 for human terminology, there is praise at the throne of God. Always give thanks. Always give thanks. Sometimes that's hard to do when we see ourselves in the midst of things not going well there's always praise at the throne of God. Okay. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones before crowns, cast their crowns before the throne. The 24 elders are sitting. They're sitting around the throne. They're sitting there, they're listening. And when that song starts, which by the way is always happening, so I get the feeling the 24 elders don't sit down that much. Right? They get up and they throw themselves down before the throne. They take the crown that's in their hand and they put the crown down because their victory only took place because of Him sitting on the throne. They recognize it and they worship Him. By the way, friends, we need to cast our crowns. Too many times I think we feel like we've got it. Somehow we're doing something that's worth it. No. We need to get off our seat and we need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus in praise and worship and take our thrones, crowns and say, they're all yours, God. It's only because of you. That is the worship scene. What humility. By the way, this is the only time worship is acceptable in a throne room. This is a little history blurb. I promise I won't take too long on it. In history, it's never safe to worship in a throne room. Oh, yes, you must respect the ruler of your people, right? But it's never safe to worship in a throne room. Right? We need to have this separation of church and state. We see that, that picture But in this case, the ruler of the universe deserves worship. This is the only time that worship can take place in a throne room. By the way, if you and I bow before the king of kings, we can stand tall before any other king. If we bow before the king of kings, we must stand tall before all others. I will respect the rulers of my people, but my worship is reserved for God alone. That's the picture we have here. Why do the 24 elders, uh, they worship, but they actually say why they're worshiping. And I like this in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord. Why is he worthy? To receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. They worship the creator God. And so today, I would like to emphasize a point. I know you realize it. But what day of the week is in honor of the creation of our world? The seventh day Sabbath. The day that we worship on today is acknowledging that we know we have a creator God. I am worshiping the creator today. I'm worshiping you because you created me. Now, um, I don't have my iPhone on me. Can you imagine? I'm standing without a smartphone for an hour. It's tongue-in-cheek. Should humans worship their smartphones? Or should their smartphones worship them? Foolish, I know, I know, but philosophically here, just, just hold on. Can a smartphone worship? No, we know that. But if it could, should it worship you? Well, or should it? Okay, so it should worship Apple or or, or, or whoever made it, right? Does the creature deserve worship or the creator? So my question for us, just briefly, is what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping a creator? Are you worshiping something that's created? Are you worshiping your smartphone? Are you worshiping your spouse? Are you worshiping your recreational activities? Are you worshiping your finances? Are you worshiping... Your pain. You know, some people worship their pain. What do you worship? What is worthy of your worship? I want you to realize that the only thing worthy of your worship is the one who created you. He is worthy of your worship. In summary... The throne is a place of justice, service, and worship. At the throne, you can see that there is justice taking place, there is service taking place, and worship taking place. We know, because we look at the 24 elders, that Jesus has led captivity captive. And that we know that there is a foretaste of what God wants to do for all of us. Sitting on thrones, dressed in white, with a crown of victory on our head. Then we also see this, that Jesus isn't seen in this chapter. We recognize we, we, we saw the one on the throne and we saw the seven spirits, but we don't see Jesus here. And it's very important that we realize that he's not here because he's coming up in the next chapter. Next, God dwells between the cherubim. Um, and that's what the four living creatures were. That was just the review of that. Our creator is worthy of worship. What do you worship? (laughs) What has your deepest desires? What is it that you give everything for? And is that thing... Worthy of your worship. May God help us to worship Him who is worthy. Could you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we stand, sit here this morning, recognizing that you are worthy. Our hearts have been moved of a God who creates, but a God who provides justice and service and who loves. And yet we've been challenged with the thought that worship sometimes doesn't reflect that. Father, we ask that you would teach us, that you draw close to us, and reveal your wonderful self to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.